Good morning. We are in 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 11 today. And we are wrapping up today our long study on the end times. Now, we're going into the book of Revelation starting next Sunday, but as far as our general sketch of the end times, we've looked at a ton of different topics. Hopefully, if you've been following this, you've got a good crash course in eschatology. Uh, we're wrapping that up today, though. And the big question is, should we preach the end times? And should Absolutely. we, when we share the gospel, make the end times a part of our presentation? Should we even bother with this stuff? Because there are a lot of Christians who think it's not important. They don't think that it's something that we should include in our gospel presentation. But as I followed the New Testament and studied it, and I encourage anybody um, who has done the same, to consider that the New Testament is full of the gospel, including this idea of Jesus' return. And Paul, even though he lived 2,000 years ago, Peter lived at the same time. When they presented the gospel, the return of the Lord Jesus was presented as an imminent fact, like it could happen in their time. Uh, it could happen any day. And that's what we're going to look at today is the imminency of the Lord's return and so when we share the gospel, of course, uh, you can believe in the Lord's imminency in a sense without necessarily believing in his soon return. And I'll explain what I mean about that. Um, there are two different types of imminency that are taught in the <coughs> New Testament. And uh, one of those is the imminency of the Lord's return, Okay, his second coming. Some people would say we don't need to really include that in our gospel presentation because, after all, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And people have been saying for hundreds and hundreds of years that he's going to come back and he hasn't. And so we should probably just leave the signs out of our gospel presentation altogether. But I disagree. And we're going to look at scripture today to try to uh, figure out what the Bible says. So before we get started, I want to pray uh, because I want the Lord to give me the word. So let's pray. Dear God, I ask that as we study your word this morning together and as I deliver this message that you will give me the words to say. I put a lot of time in studying this, Lord, as you know, and I've gone to you in prayer seeking your will as to what I need to say. And I just pray that as you've guided me throughout my preparation that you will guide me now as I teach this and whoever's listening, uh, whether in this room or abroad, that they will get something out of it, God, that will edify them and will be applicable to their life. And I pray that you will uh, do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, and so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 1, Paul starts with, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Mm -hmm. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together 
and edify one another even as ye also do. And so today, as we talk about the return of the Lord, the first thing that comes to mind is in verse 1 when it mentions times and seasons, what exactly is being referenced there. Uh, the word times here refers to chronology. So it refers to different periods of time. Seasons refers to characteristics of those different periods. And so if we were to sit under Paul's teaching, as the Thessalonians had already done, and he informs them that they had already learned much of the end times from him, uh, the times would have no doubt involved the tribulation, which was a seven-year time period uh, known as da Daniel's 70th week. Uh, he would have talked to them about the millennium, which we've done already in our study, and he would have characterized both of those time periods. He would have talked to them about what the tribulation is going to look like. He would have talked to them about what the millennium's going to look like and the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. We talked about that. And there are lots of details in that passage that we went over that describe uh, the times and the seasons. But as far as the day of the Lord is concerned, which I believe includes all of that, it includes the tribulation, it includes the millennium, the day of the Lord itself, we don't know when it's going to arrive. And so while Paul could say a lot, just as Jesus could say a lot about what the tribulation is going to look like and what the millennium is going to look like, when exactly will those time periods arrive on the scene of history? We don't know. And that's what he says in verse 2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. So when will the tribulation begin and set into motion this chain of events that Jesus talks about uh, Paul talks about and Revelation describes in detail. We don't know when the day of the Lord will commence. So in verse number three, when it says they shall be saying peace and safety, this doesn't mean that there will be no indications at all that we are getting close to that time. After all, he does say to the Thessalonians to be watching. Uh, to be watching implies that there's something concrete that they can observe about the coming times and seasons. But even so, nothing is going to be so obvious to where a Christian can say, all right, we know exactly the day, we know exactly the hour, the month, and the year. And so Christians are left guessing as far as that is concerned. Yes. I have a question. Ask away. Um, so they're saying peace and safety. Does that mean they're asking for peace and safety because there isn't any, or they're saying peace and safety because there is peace and safety? This seems to be them saying that everything's okay. Peace and safety, like in Matthew 24, when it says they'll be eating and drinking and giving in marriage and then sudden destruction. Down this road before, we're not very far from we're not saying peace and safety. Yes, but I, I think that let's consider let's consider the, the psyche, if you will, of the unbeliever. Uh, there are people who have fears, but yet they say everything's okay. They say that we're seeing progress. So I know this just from, you know, teaching high school students and, and seeing their generation, they would say that we are getting better. A lot of them would, um, at least the ones who have bought into the left's agenda, they would say that we are progressing as a society and we're leaving behind things that, uh, would be considered outdated old fashioned. Uh, but you can see that there is this, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? An atmosphere of fear. And so I do believe that their confidence in progress is very fragile. 
And so I, I believe that that's just the, the thin exterior when they say peace and safety. But yes, I think we that people can mass famine and all of that stuff and people be saying peace and safety. Um, I, I don't know how, how much it would take to shatter someone's delusion is really what it comes down to. Um, I think that even when things get really bad and uh, the Antichrist comes onto the scene and promises peace and prosperity, I think there will be people who are telling themselves that, yes, peace and safety are imminent, at least. So even, yeah, even throughout the tribulation, after all these signs have been made clear, you know, for a Christian who's in this time period, who's come to the light, who's gotten saved after the rapture, and they see these things happening, it's going to be obvious that, look, we've only got so many days, we got so many years, and all these things that are happening are following the biblical chronology, and so they're watching their awake. Yes, I mean, yeah. But there will still be people who are shocked by the coming of Jesus at the end of that time period to bring in judgment. They will still be shocked by it. And we see that, for example, in the parable of the virgins, Um, the shock that these people, these are Jews who wake up in the tribulation, but even... By the time that the door is shut in their face, there is shock uh, on their part. And so, uh, again, I think that people can delude themselves quite thoroughly. But uh, as far as peace and safety here, what Paul is describing is these people are saying, okay, it's all good, but it suddenly comes upon them and everything is upset, everything is changed. And, and I think that the, the first noticeable crack in that will be when the rapture happens. I think that we're, 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 things are weakening right now, I believe. Uh, so I, I am convinced 100% that we are getting very close to the rapture. Uh, however, I think when the rapture happens and the tribulation actually begins, that's whenever people, when they say peace and safety, it's going to be very forced. Okay. So right now, yes, right now the atmosphere that I described among young people who might say, hey, we're progressing. We're getting better. It may seem bad, but things are getting better. Um, Half of them are committing suicide. Or, or, yes, exactly. So I think suicide. we're already fragile right now, but I think that when the rapture happens and the tribulation begins, that's when peace and safety, I mean, they're they're not going to be claiming it at that point. Yeah. So then that's what he says here. He says, when the day of the Lord comes, they're going to stop saying peace and safety. The Antichrist will come on then, and then they will have something that they can cling to um, and delude themselves with. Uh, but whenever the rapture happens before the antichrist comes onto the scene, because he will emerge after the rapture. We don't know how much long after the rapture, but he will emerge after. Uh, but when the day of the Lord first comes, uh, you know, all delusions will be shattered. And, and that's something we'll talk about when we get to revelation chapter six, it talks about the sky being rolled back as a scroll and people hiding, you know, under the rocks beneath mm-hmm. the mountains and asking the mountains to fall upon them. And, and it's like, okay, there seems to be a wake up, moment right there, but it doesn't last. And so we'll talk about that uh, more because I think it's very fascinating. The same people who, you know, at that point are saying, you know, let the the mountains fall down upon us. And they recognize that, you know, judgment has come as soon as judgment is put off because Jesus isn't coming back at that point at at that seal being broken. He hasn't set up his kingdom yet. There's still going to be seven years following that or, or close to it, you know, but the point is they're going to go right back to putting their hope in the Antichrist. It was like there was a wake-up moment that hopefully would lead them to repent, but it doesn't. Um, It doesn't lead to genuine repentance, at least in most cases, right? So we'll talk more about that, but uh, let's move back to the text in verse number uh, three. When they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. 
but ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. So this is a comfort uh, that only makes sense in light of the end times. So whenever you're sharing the good news of the gospel, what does that good news entail? What does it involve? It should be, I think, more than just you're forgiven of your sins and you're going to heaven. That's foundational, obviously, and that's essential, no doubt. But uh, I think that Paul would agree that part of the good news, part of the gospel is the news that we will not be here whenever wrath is poured out on earth. So if the gospel presentation doesn't involve um, the wrath that is to come upon the world one day that Christians are exempt from, I think that you're missing something. Um, I think, Christy, you posted something uh, about a week or two ago, and it was a really, really good article about the pre-tribulation rapture and its place in the New Testament. And that all that did was cement this that I was studying at the time because uh, it was a really good article, and we'll post it. Um, on our website so you can see what I'm talking about, but it does a really good job of demonstrating that for the early Christians, for the first century, belief in the rapture, belief in um, God delivering us from the wrath of the tribulation, that that was an essential part of the gospel for them, but that they, they believed it. No, yes. Don't, don't you agree that when a person first comes to Christ, it's just, they, they call them a baby in Christ? Yes, and they have a lot they to learn. The milk, yes. The milk of the word, and that's more like the meat. Well, I I would say, yeah, I would say the, the meat, though, would be getting into details that are uh, unnecessary for them at that immature point in their, their spirituality. Yeah. So I think, though, that if someone was to preach, let's say this basic truth that Jesus did, because Jesus, he was preaching to the crowds, uh, people who were not believers, right? And he talked a lot about the second coming, didn't he? He talked a lot about the angels being sent out and... Uh, the judgment, the separating of the sheep and the goats, right? And he was talking to unbelievers in, in many of these cases. And so uh, I don't think that we should shy away from the end times. I think we should shy away from needless debate whenever we're sharing the gospel with unbelievers, right? I'm not going to, you know, get into, all right, what's the ethnicity of the Antichrist? Like, right. that's not essential, okay? That's not part of the gospel. But I think that part of the gospel is this idea that the world that we see currently is going to be judged by God. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, then you will be uh, affected by that judgment. Okay. You're going to be part of that judgment. And so you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved from condemnation now, and you'll be saved from <coughs> condemnation whenever it comes in the form of the second coming. But that brings me to something that I mentioned earlier, and it may have been confusing to you if you heard it for the first time. Uh, but this idea of dual imminency that uh, I think that it, ha it has a lot of insight to it, um, but it's in Scripture, this idea that our life is frail. Um, in James chapter 4, this is a verse that I'm sure many of you will be familiar with, heard it before. Um, it says, sorry, am I, I got the right? No, sorry, James chapter 4, verse 14. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanish away. For you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. And so the idea that our life is frail and we have no idea when it will end is a big part of the New Testament. It's a part of Jesus's uh, preaching in Luke chapter 12, verse 20, whenever he's talking about the rich man who builds this barn and throws his stuff in it and gathers it and says, you know, I will rejoice, I will feast. But the Lord says, in Luke 12, verse 20, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. 
then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? And so this idea that we're going to have to stand before the Lord, uh, we don't know when it will happen first. Will it happen whenever we die? Will it happen whenever Jesus comes back? Which will happen first? We don't know which will happen first. Uh, but I think both of those things are clearly taught in the preaching of Jesus. They're both clearly taught in the apostles. Generally, when we hear evangelism, you focus on one of them, don't you? And the one that's focused on is you don't know when you're going to die. Yes, include that in your message because it's truth. And we see it as we just read here in James and in Luke. Um, and it's common sense. You don't know when you're going to die. And it's possible, okay, there's a, a good chance that you will die rather than Jesus come back in your lifetime. Okay? But does that mean we should ignore the second aspect of the Lord's imminent coming or the Lord's imminent judgment, which is his second coming? Should we just talk about the fact that life is frail and we could die any day and stand before the Lord? Or should we include also the idea that Jesus could come back at any moment? All right, if it's, if it's true that I could die at any moment, it is equally true that Jesus could come back at any moment. And so we need to, when we share the gospel, involve both of those things, I believe. Um, in Matthew 24, uh, I referenced that earlier. Matthew 24, verse 32, I want to read from here. It says, uh, now learn um, a parable of the fig tree. Or sorry, um, I need to be in verse 36. Uh, chapter 24, verse 36, not 32. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. For as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the son of man be. Now we could go on and we could keep reading there, but the idea is that there are two types of imminency. The word imminence means it's on the cups. It could happen at any moment. Yes, I could die at any moment. Yes, Jesus could come back at any moment. Both of those things should be part of our gospel presentation. Just as much as whenever you preach salvation, what does salvation mean? I don't think that it takes too much effort and too much time in a gospel presentation to say that salvation is not just being justified and being forgiven so that way you go to heaven when you die. Salvation is also Jesus coming back, changing this world from the death and decay that we see into incorruptible life, a new creation that won't pass away. And so not only is my soul saved when I believe in Jesus, but it is also promised to me that my body will be renewed. And so this is not an afterthought in the teaching of the New Testament. I mean, I really encourage everybody who's listening to this, read the New Testament, okay? There is no unhealthy emphasis on one at the, the, the what's the, the, the expense of the other. They talk about justification. They talk about glorification. They talk about the fact that life could be snatched away at any moment, but they also talk about the fact that Jesus could come back any single day. Um, and so we shouldn't have this attitude as many evangelicals have. Well, everybody's been saying Jesus is going to come back and he hasn't come back yet. So we probably shouldn't even talk about that in our preaching because that's going to make us look like idiots. Never mind we're the closest it's ever been regardless. That's right. And I, and I think that we shouldn't shy away from preaching that as long as we make it clear when we're preaching, we don't know when he will come back. We simply don't know. And, and that makes me want to think, or uh, makes me want to talk about um, Hosea chapter 6 that we had our study on a couple weeks ago 
Uh, somebody might have got the impression when they were listening to that sermon that, all right, Hosea talks about the two days and then the third day. Mm-hmm. You know, the two days Israel's been cast off. The third day would be the millennium when they're restored in the eyes of their Savior. Um, I think that that is a legitimate application of the text. I wouldn't have preached on it if I didn't think so. However, that is not the primary meaning of the text. Just to clarify, the primary meaning when it talks about the two days and then the third day, that's talking about Jesus dying, being buried, and after two days, on the third day, being risen. Okay, so the, the primary application is about the Jews receiving salvation in their Messiah who will die and then three days later come back from the dead. However... When you look at the New Testament occasionally, and we got to be careful with this, guys, okay, because we don't want to read into the Bible things that aren't there, but we see Paul, for example, in Galatians, he'll take something like Israel, and he'll say, okay, so we have Israel having a covenant with God, uh, this Abrahamic covenant. It does pertain to the Jews in a special way. It involves land promises. It involves you know God preserving them as an ethnic group, but yet then he'll take the same Abrahamic covenant And he'll say, well, this applies not just to the Jews, it also applies to Gentiles. And in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And so there seems to be shades of meaning to certain things in the Old Testament. Now, I am not an apostle, so I don't have the ability to read something and say, oh, well, here's a shade of meaning that nobody has seen before. I'm not going to do that unless I have indication from the New Testament. That's why whenever we talked about Hosea 6, we went to Peter's writings. And I think that we saw some hints in the writings of Peter that perhaps Hosea 6 is talking about um, how we've been roughly 2,000 years since Israel was cast off. And there's good reason to believe that Jesus might be coming back to restore his people and to bring in the kingdom. But I don't want anybody who's been listening to that to think that that means that Jesus couldn't have come back sooner. Mm-hmm. Because he could have. Do I know for a fact that Jesus is going to come back 2,000 years after the Jews have been cast off. I don't know that. Is the Bible explicit on that matter? Like, this is what it says. If it was explicit, that that means for the past 2,000 years, every generation of Christian would have to say, well, I'm not part of that. Yeah. yeah, like, I'm not part of that. I guess I'll just have to wait. You know, I'll die. And then, you know, after my body's been in the earth for a while, then I'll be resurrected, you know, and I'll get to go to heaven when I die, but I don't have the blessed hope to look forward to in my lifetime. And that's not true because the New Testament clearly teaches that every generation has that blessed hope because no one knows the day or the hour. I think this is hindsight 2020, really. Um, Looking back on it now, from our perspective, it seems like our time is right for prophetic fulfillment. And I think it is, right? But uh, we shouldn't read our experience back into let's say the first generation of Christians or any generation that has followed that and say, well, just because it didn't happen then and Jesus hasn't come back yet, it couldn't have happened then. It could have happened then. It just didn't. So we find ourselves, I believe, close, very close to the return of the Lord, but it is equally true that at any time in history, the Lord Jesus could have come back. And so the imminency of the Lord is something that every generation should cling to. And as Paul says here um, in chapter 5 of uh, 1 Thessalonians, verse number 11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you also do. That means every single church, every single congregation should be comforting each other and edifying one another with this truth that Jesus could come back in their lifetime. And so, again, I believe this is something that we should 
preach in our gospel presentation as well as comforting other believers. All right, but obviously, 1 Thessalonians 5 isn't really talking about the frailty of life. It isn't really talking about the fact that people could die at any moment. It is talking about the second coming in particular. So what benefits do we have from dwelling upon this topic? So the first thing is it's an encouragement for us because we know it could happen in our lifetime and we need that hope. We need that hope to feed upon every single day. Um, We also have uh, motivation because he says here that since we are children of the light and children of the day and we're not of night nor of darkness, we ought not to sleep like other people do. So we have this great hope. We have this promise that we will be taken away whenever the wrath is poured out upon the earth. And so because of that, we shouldn't sleep, but rather watch and be sober. So it is a motivation to know that um, we are all going to be taken when the rapture happens, whether we're watching or not. But do we want to be found sleeping when Jesus returns? No. And so the imminent return of Jesus should be a wake up call for every single believer that the Lord, he could come back now. And if he came back now and your life was put on display at the judgment seat of Christ, what would it look like? Would it, would it be worthy of his commendation? And of course, you know, any honest Christian will say, man, I just don't feel like I I give enough to the Lord. And yes, I mean, I don't think I'll ever reach a point in my life where I, I don't feel unworthy, but um, am I trying to honor God in my life or am I blatantly disregarding his commands? And so that's what Paul's talking about here. Don't sleep. Don't be like everybody else. Wake up because he could come back at any time. And you having your eyes open and eagerly anticipating the return of the Lord every day of your life is going to serve the purpose of making you fit. So that way, when Jesus comes back, even though you're saved by grace through faith and, and we're promised again, it says, even if you're not awake in verse 10, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So even if you're a carnal believer, you're going to be taken in the rapture. So this idea of a partial rapture, he takes the faithful, but not the unfaithful. That's wrong. The Bible spells it out right here. It clears day. But uh, that doesn't, in my mind, I don't see how it could. It doesn't give me any excuse to sin. I don't see how people can say that when they object to this belief, because that's what they'll do. They'll say, well, if salvation's free, if, if, you know, being taken up in the rapture is not based on your faithfulness, it's just a free gift, then won't you just sin? You know, won't you just sin rampantly in your life? Do y'all have, does that effect happen to y'all when you think about the gift the Lord's given you? It doesn't to me. I just think about how God has been so good to me and I want to please him in my life. And so the freeness of the rapture, as well as justification and all these other salvation blessings we have, the freeness of it is a motivation for me. Um, It's definitely not something that gives me an excuse um, or uh, an opportunity to sin. And so lastly, unbelievers, the uh, sudden coming of the Lord is a warning to unbelievers. And Jesus in his time, when he preached, I know that Jesus was offering the kingdom gospel, and we've talked about that in our Friday night study. But Jesus, all throughout his ministry, and the apostles, all throughout their ministries, uh, John talked about the return of the Lord Mm -hmm. um, in Revelation. Even after the kingdom gospel was no longer being preached and the temple had been destroyed, he's still preaching the imminence of the Lord's return. Jesus said, I'm coming soon. It was a constant fixture of their preaching. Jesus is coming back soon. Jesus is coming back soon. 
And so I, I just want to say that Ark of Hope, um, we need to be a good example to other Christians. Mm-hmm. And part of that example is talking about the Lord all the time. And if we talk about the Lord so much that it becomes um, an essential aspect of our conversation, the Lord's return in particular, then we're doing a good job following the example set by the New Testament. And so our, the conclusion of the study and uh, all of this, guys, was in response to the objection that we don't really need the end times in our gospel presentation. And, and guys, I've read, I've read old commentators and I've read old sermons and as I've read them, I've noticed that a lot of them, they don't focus on the return of the Lord as much. Um, in the 1800s, there was a huge revival of premillennial eschatology. And I think, again, that may just very well be a sign of the times. I believe it is. Uh, but before then, people were preaching the gospel faithfully too. They simply didn't have the return of the Lord as an essential element of their gospel presentation. And it, it doesn't mean that they weren't being faithful. They were, they were warning people that, look, you could die any day and you need Jesus now. And, and we should continue to do that. But I think that because we've had some people make some prophecies, false prophecies, that is that haven't come to pass. And it's, it's kind of, it's just put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth when it comes to the end times. And so a lot of evangelicals, when they do evangelism, they're just like, let's not talk about the end times. Like, yeah, it's part of the apostles creed. It's part of the essential teachings of Christianity that Jesus is coming back, but let's not really talk about it. But it's a thing that people have a lot of questions about. And yes, absolutely. And especially in our time uh, with all the things that we've already talked about, all the signs that are already uh, being set before our eyes, I think we should talk about it all the more. But even if we were living in the 1500s, Okay, even if we were living in the 300s um, and we didn't have the benefit of all the knowledge we have today and all the things that we're seeing today, if I live back then, I still ought to be preaching the return of the Lord and I ought to be preaching it faithfully as an encouragement and as a motivation and as a warning. Like Charles Page wrote Russell. Yes, exactly. And that, and that was, that, yeah, thank you, Steve. So that's an example. Charles Taze Russell um, and other people, his successors after him, uh, predicting the return of the Lord and it didn't happen. Seventh-day Adventists, they have a bad history of that too. And and so that has, again, it's put a whole negative um, aspect to this you know teaching of the end times that we find in the Bible. But uh, they were going about it wrong because they denied what Paul is maintaining here. Paul is saying no one knows. He says in verse 2, you know perfectly, which is kind of ironic, you know exactly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. You know exactly, precisely when the Lord is coming back. And then he says, you don't know. So it's like, you know when he's coming back. He's coming back as a surprise. And so Charles Taze Russell, Seventh-day Adventists, um, or other cults that have tried to predict the exact timing of the Lord's return, um, they should not discourage us from Christians from clinging to this blessed hope in our own lifetime and sharing it with other people. If it doesn't happen, that's fine. You know, if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, God doesn't promise that it will happen in my lifetime. He just promises that I will be part of it. And uh, he promises that uh, even if that wrath is not poured out in the 21st century, when Buddy Smith is alive, that wrath will be poured out eventually. And I will not be part of it Mm -hmm. because he's promised that I will not be part of it. And that I will participate in the rapture. Bible says that's a false prophet. Somebody predicts something that doesn't come true. That's right. They're a false prophet. 
That's right. And so we have to be very careful with all the, the study of the end times that I, I adore. And you know, we spent a ton of time talking about it. And we're going into Revelation. We're going to be talking about it a lot more. Uh, we need to remember that um, ultimately God's in charge and, and we're not. But we should be watching. And again, watching implies that we are actively discussing the return of the Lord. And we're following what scripture says about it. And we're comparing what the Bible says to what's happening in the world around us. Um, I know that on uh, our chat groups, you know, Christy and Scott and, you know, sometimes me, but especially Christy, you know, and I'm thankful all the, the articles that you're posting about stuff that's happening. That's the kind of attitude that we ought to have. Now, we would be in error if we said, all right, well, look at this. It's happening this year. All right. It's happening this month. It's happening this day. We would be in error if we did that. But is there anything wrong with having this passion about, you know, studying in times? And yeah, look, that's right. We should have that passion. And aware of the seasons, know the times. Exactly. And so we are going to be doing that. And um, we're going to continue maintaining, obviously, the basic gospel presentation that, you know, um, life is fragile and we all need Jesus regardless if the Lord returns in our time. But we're going to talk about the Lord's return a lot, too. Yes, yes. Um, but if you're an evangelical and you're saying, oh, Jesus is coming back next month, then you have fallen into the trap of becoming that false prophet. Because yes. You don't know that yeah. and you are not rightly dividing the work. Yes, yes, absolutely. So we should we should be very careful. Some people have taken it too far. Uh, like, for example, uh, I'm not mentioning names, but uh, there are some evangelicals that I've recommended. I've listened to their stuff and. And uh, they'll say when Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour, that's actually him telling you exactly when he's coming back. They take they take that statement, which literally Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour. And they take that to mean, oh, day, no one knows the day or the hour is a catchphrase for the festival of trumpets. And they'll say so they take a, a clear teaching that says no one can know to you. It can at least know the day. You can at least know the day, but he, and so, but I think that uh, yeah, on the feast, it's going to happen. And I, and it doesn't spell that out. It's a possibility. Okay. But it doesn't spell that out. And in context, Jesus isn't using it as a catchphrase. He says, no one knows the day or the hour, not, not the angels, not even the son of man knew in his humiliation or his incarnation. Um, and so in context, he's not referring to a feast. He's saying, I can't tell you the exact day or the hour because even right now, I don't know. He knows now. But so some people have taken that statement and they've they've twisted it somewhat to contradict it. So, so anyways, uh, that that's all for today. Thank you for listening and uh, join us as we do our study of Revelation starting next Sunday. God bless.